Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. It is a pleasure to be here in uh, in Phoenix. Um, normally, I think I would have said thank you for, for making me leave New Jersey in the middle of the winter, although when I left, it was 70 degrees in New Jersey, although I hear the temperature is plummeting rapidly, so I probably will be happy that I'm here when I look at the weather tomorrow. Um, and it is a pleasure to be here. I haven't been here in at least 12 years, so, so it's very nice to be back. Um, Building on what Rabbi Shmuley's uh, little anecdote was, a um, couple of years ago, uh, when the book was just at the beginning, I guess over two years ago, um, I was at some Oneg somewhere doing my work, and I met a woman who knew me over many years, someone I just see every couple of years, and she asked me what I was working on. What, what book are you working on these days? And I said, oh, I'm actually, I just started work on a new book. It's about Jews and money. She absolutely gasped. She said, you can't, you can't. I said, I can't, why can't I? You'll give them more material. I said, who? The anti-Semites. You'll give them more material. And I've been very curious to see if anybody else would react that way. Uh, needless to say, I, I've done the book, no matter what, and I'm proudly speaking about this topic in many places. And I don't think that we should mute ourselves in any way, shape, or form, but I've never heard that complaint from anybody else. Nobody else has, has uh, it's not even a complaint, it's a fear. And, and, and I understand it's a valid fear. It's a, we are living in scary times. Um, but I think what Deborah Lipstadt especially teaches that we both have to be proud of our Judaism, not be defined by anti-Semitism, and we need to fight anti-Semitism is ring so true for this topic. And I'm not going to be talking about it tonight, but there is a really wonderful chapter in this anthology by Dr. Joshua Hollow of Hebrew Union College about the imagery of the money, money lender in history and, um, and, uh, and anti-Semitism. And he very much comes at it from the point of view that this is something to be proud of, that Jews, here, I'll give you the punchline, Jews and Christians and Muslims all really went against their religions and were money lenders in different ways, sometimes with legal loopholes, sometimes without and therefore contributed to the evolution of the economy to being the economy as we know it today and the global economy as we know it. And uh, that's his punchline. But it's a wonderful article and really worthwhile looking at. But in the meantime, let me tell you a little bit about the sacred uh, exchange. 
and I'm just gonna stand to have a little more energy and hopefully everybody can see me. Um, we're going to do a combination of looking at each other and looking at the screen. And I thank in advance Isabel, who's going to be the human clicker because the, that setup seems to be missing here. So um, on the months that I worked on this book, this anthology, um, I sat with that over my desk. In fact, I brought you the exact sign that was typed out on my computer and I pinned up on the bulletin board above my desk because this is what I wanted to create with this book, the answer to this question. How can Jewish tradition guide the manner in which we interact with each other and the world through money? And I wanted to be able to answer some foundational questions as uh, we were exploring this. And, and then the how-tos. You know, a book like this about Jews and money, it's very easy to go right to the practical and want to talk about all the interesting um, different situations we get into. You know, for instance, the ethics of donors and what should we do when we have money um, from a donor who has done bad? What, what does our tradition say about that? And what should we as, as individuals and as communities, what should we do? We have that uh, chapter in the book, but we have to also have a lot of foundational conversations about what Judaism has to say about money. Because in many ways, it, it really does matter uh, what is influencing our attitudes about money as much as what we practically do with money. Because that's, that's a huge correlation in those. So that, that is what I, I started with. Um, my first anthology, as you heard, was The Sacred Table Having to Do with Food. And after that book came out, um, which um, was very well received, uh, my publisher just kept asking me, like, what's your next book? What's your next book? And um, I didn't have an answer. I had been so ensconced with the food topic for so long that it was hard to really picture anything else. A little louder? No. Yes. I don't know. My publisher actually won't tell me that. That's okay. But um, in, in, uh, since it came out, I spoke in over 65 different communities uh, on top of my day job. You know, that was without trying. I never, had a, never sought a speaking engagement. I know many people have, have read the book. Uh, you know, it's Jewish publishing. Uh, it's the liberal wing of Jewish publishing. So I think that's pretty small puddle uh, in the world of publishing. Um, but, you know, I, it, it has kept me out of trouble, and the book, as I like to say, has had a lot of fun without me, too. So that's, that's the good news. So, um, so I happened to participate in a wonderful um, seminar that I was invited to called the Op-Ed Project. It's a nonprofit that uh, has women leaders of all different types throughout the world um, come together for a special training to raise the profile of thought leadership from women in the public sector. Because if, when you look at, for instance, the number of op-eds that are written by women versus men, that number has been pretty miserable. And, um, and so they were trying to jumpstart that and raise the number of women. And it was really through this project that I had my aha moment. Because they ask you to reflect on your expertise and I realized, uh, I thought my expertise was food and Judaism, which it is. But I had realized that I was talking as equally about food as economic justice, about SNAP, food stamps, uh, about internalized and externalized costs. 
and that over the course of my rabbinate and adult life that I had been thinking about a lot of questions having to do with money. And that's what gave birth to the sacred uh, exchange. And the fun thing about doing an anthology is that as the, um, the, the conductor of all this, you need to have a certain level of expertise, but then you get to draw from people who have very narrow expertise. Of course, they of course themselves have wide expertise, but you get to draw on their narrow stripe of expertise that you're asking them to write on. And, and it's almost like playing fantasy football. You sit back and you kind of dump your brain on a piece of paper of everything you want to be in the book. And then you start to think, who would be the best person for this? And then you start making phone calls and sending emails. And sometimes they say things like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm writing my own book right now. I have no time to do anything extra. Sometimes they just had twins and they can't write right now. So it depends who you've asked. And uh, then you kind of think of, OK, well, who else? And then people start writing and sending you chapters. And the funny thing is that everything I imagined comes to life and then takes interesting twists and turns. Just like Dr. Hollow, I did not expect him to come forward with the thesis that we should be really proud of Jewish moneylenders. That's something you don't hear that often, actually, right? No, <laughs> no. So, um, you know, so there's one of those moments where you're like, wow people are really going to learn something and ha from this interesting point of view. And they could juxtapose it with other points of views of other scholars who may feel differently. But this is something unique. This is a unique voice that needs to be in this book. And therefore, the book itself creates many conversations amongst, amongst the chapters. Um, and that's what's really fun about this kind of project. So we're going to move forward. And I, I just want to spend a little time with you thinking about what makes it challenging talking about money? What, what is challenging about it? So just amongst ourselves here, just to take a moment, I'm, of course, starting with the thesis that it is hard to talk about money. And if you think I'm wrong, you know, please let me know. Finances are private. I mean, people judge and compare each other over them. It's, it's a, a tender topic. And not so, I mean, with my generation, but like with my daughter's generation, They'll talk about salaries and who's making what. And it was always taboo. Mm -hmm. so, um, so there's the attitude is private. It seems to be a taboo for some people. And, and, and there's a tenderness to it I, that you said, right? So um, let, maybe somebody else talk more about the tenderness and what else? I don't know about tenderness, but it, it's often used as a de facto measure of someone's success. Mm -hmm. Whereas that's not necessarily a good measure of anyone's success. So, so that, that your, your net worth or your salary becomes a reflection of your success. Right. And, and also beyond that, your status in the world. You know, and we've certainly seen over the last two years enough people with a lot of money who really are bad actors. Yes. I mean, just, just miserable, useless, terrible people. But because of their wealth and their influence, got, they got a, a pass for behaviors that nowhere else in the world would you get a pass from. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to just, uh, for people in podcast land, I'm just going to reiterate just your salient points, just so make sure everybody in the world can hear it, because I, I hear there are hundreds and hundreds of other people who are going to be listening to this. So, um, 
So it's the hierarchies, but we tend to create the socioeconomic hierarchies we create based on those, those numbers. And, and the realization that not everybody's treated equally, that some people who seem to have a lot of money therefore have a lot of power and sometimes even are let off the hook and not, not treated, uh, per, not held accountable for their actions in the same way. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think that societally we're expected to go into debt for every large, every pertinent event to our lives, every life cycle event means debt. So, hmm. I mean, at least for my generation, I'm a little younger than <laughs> many in the room, uh, maybe not everyone. And um, I went into debt for college, and then I went into debt to buy a house, and then I went into debt to have a baby, and then I went into debt to like advance myself in my career even. Mm -hmm. And so every time I turn a page in my life, it means taking on another encumbrance financially. And it's something that we don't like to talk about because we want to focus on the simple of like moving forward in our lives. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of service that comes with having to take on the debt just to go one more step. Mm -hmm. I love the imagery you bring to that, the idea of the turning the pages in our life, those life cycle moments that you're expected and you do take on debt to be able to move forward in that book of life and the simcha of it, right? And, and, and it's funny because like you have the secret debt that's not a simcha at the time, at the same time you have the simcha of moving forward in your life. That's a mixed blessing. Mm -hmm. Wow, beautiful imagery. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think we, we touched on people viewing each other's net worth as a measure of their success, but probably even more insidious is viewing ourselves, our personal worth, and confusing that net worth. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The way we view ourselves, whether or not we view our net worth as our worth to ourselves. Beautifully said. Anybody else? Yeah. It's always been challenging in the fundraising area. Uh, when we've solicited for a Jewish Federation in the past, we're asked to rate, rate people. We don't really know what they have or don't have. We look at their material items. We think they might have the capacity to, to pledge a certain amount. And it's, uh, it's not comfortable. Yes, um, and that, that comes to the ways we size each other up. First, that we are sizing each other up and, and, and what that means to do that. Yeah. Any last thoughts? We're going to move on to a new question otherwise. Yeah, next question. Next. Why does it matter? Why does it matter how we talk about money? We know it's challenging, but why does it matter? Yeah. Um, because essentially, particularly in the United States, uh, money makes the world go round. I mean, that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. um, so as much <coughs> as one would not want there to be that way, um, entering into certain, becoming part of certain groups of certain people you want to be associated with or you, you know, whatever, seems to have the, um, the idea of the finance. If you don't have certain finances, you can't be part of certain groups. I think you're talking about socioeconomic. Uh -huh. That's yep. the phrase we use commonly, right? 
Yes, absolutely. This stratification, this separation we seem to, to create in our society, um, which is everywhere, but yes, in America it's very acute. Um, we, we historically don't like to talk about money. At the same time, uh, we love the narrative of the self-made person. Uh, even to the point where we're a little bit suspicious of people who come into wealth easily. That's why all of our political candidates will swear up and down that they're self-made and do everything to, in their power to try to prove it. Uh, because uh, we are suspicious of the person who has money automatically. At the same time, we, we have this very contradictory uh, point of push and pull with, with that attitude of the deep respect for people who have it and the suspicion of people who have it. Um, it's kind of very mixed up. And of course, if you've ever had the beauty, beautiful conversation with someone, especially from Israel, who like, will just look you in the eyes five minutes after meet, meeting you and say, like, how much do you make? How much is your house worth? You know, like, with, right? And, with, and you're just sta sit, standing there stammering because as an American, you're blushing and have no idea what you're supposed to say at such a moment. Um, you know, how could you ask me something so personal? And we've also heard the intergenerationality of it. Um, studies show over and over that um, those um, millennials and now Generation Z, um, that they are more open, and, and as you said about your daughter and her, her friends, that they are um, more capable of talking about money openly. But it doesn't mean it's over. It, it's just a little bit more. Um, and, and of course, part of that is being driven by the fact that they witnessed the Great Recession, that they're struggling with great debt, um, and, and those things are, are driving that honesty. Yeah, so what are some of the other reasons why this matters? Mm -hmm. But if you go to other parts of the world, it, it's, you know, it's kind of anathema because they view things as transitional, they view things as ephemeral, for example, and the, the society that we live in makes no moral sense to them. So certainly we, we've all had, um, you know, either through pictures or directly seeing the sparsity with, with which other cultures live, even when people are, have comfortable middle class lives and above. Um, yes, we are in a culture of acquisition in many ways. I just want to caution that because I think people of my generation, our generation, we tend to think of acquisition of like Dallas, the t TV show from the 80s of, of um, the big gold watches and the big fancy car. And acquisition and uh, cons conspicuous consumption has a lot of different forms in different uh, regions, even within America. The Wall Street Journal had an interesting article, I think it was about six months ago, where they went through every sit major city in America and listed like what conspicuous consumption looks like. The, the two that I remember, it, Dallas, um, Fancy brand name makeup, and DC, Washington DC, reference books, you know? So, so uh, it's important not to think of conspicuous consumption and acquisition just as uh, the things we expect it to be. Uh, Rabbi Shmuley and I were, do, were uh, recording 
podcast before, and I, I referred to the fact that um, that conspicuous consumption can also be your vacation. Um, that you're, and then you put the photos. I think a lot, especially the younger generations, being driven by what people photograph and what they put on social media, and that's the conspicuous consumption. It's it's not necessarily the way I would view it. Um, a couple of great comments, and then we'll, we're going to continue on to the next slide. Yep, go ahead. I just wondered if uh, you felt that it might have been cyclical, uh, and that just brought it to mind because you said the people, the younger people of today, the millennials and Generation Z, witnessed the Great Recession. Yes. Well, then you go back to the Great Depression. Yes. And, you know, our, our um, grandparents and, and parents Witness that. Part of that. Uh, mm -hmm. And could it be that it, you know those things become public, private, public, depending upon the situation, maybe that you're trying to either put forward or keep private, just because of what they've witnessed in their lives. Absolutely, um, I, I agree that um, it can be cyclical. Uh, my my own grandmother was very influential in my life. Uh, the entire family used to make fun of her because she would save every piece of bakery twine and write on the back of every single envelope. Of course, today we call that an environmentalist. Um, but, but, right? But, um, you know, to, to us it just seemed um, like she was really, well, beyond frugal, damaged by, the, by her experience of growing up during the Depression, that, that she wasn't comfortable, you know, she was always scared that that would happen. And um, so, it, it, yes, there is something cyclical about that, that uh, now I'm watching her great-grandchild ra being raised in a generation that went through the Great Recession. Yeah. Are we still on why it matters? Sure. So I think it matters because of the close association between money and power. Hmm. Yes, I agree. I think it also um, matters for the ways we bridge that, that gap. Um, we in the Jewish community who strive to make tzedek justice uh, and we who give tzedakah uh, money that hopefully makes justice in the world. It also matters for the difficult conversations that we have to have uh, among families, between partners in life, in greater communities, and the fact that sometimes we're not having the conversations, whether it's what's going to happen with my money after I die and I'm no longer here, uh, questions of estate, um, people who are dating and falling in love, having to reveal to one another how much debt they have. That is a real thing for, for your generation. Um, and for couples who are struggling with uh, getting their life on track, all of that together, there are so many things that we're not talking about because of that. And I will meet couples who never talk about finances. They've been married for multiple, multiple years and they never talk about it. And therefore, it's a schism in their marriage. Um, you know, and there's even a name for when one partner is doing things secretly with money. You know, it's called financially, financial infidelity. Did you know there's actually a name for it? And there are therapists that deal specifically with that problem. So all, all real things. So what would make it easier? I hope the sacred exchange will make it easier. So we're going to bump ahead, because I want to show you some of these great, amazing texts that we have. But I do want to show you, first of all, what's in the book. So we're, we're just going to go through this kind of 
quickly, Isabel, just so you don't have to jump up and down too much. So, oh, small change. So um, one of the things I did in the Sacred Table, and I've continued in this book, it, it became the um, model for this uh, Challenge and Chain series from the CCR Press, um, is that uh, I wanted a lot of texture of voice. There are, are beautiful art articles, chapters. They're organized into parts of the book. And at the very beginning of the book, uh, we, we just asked like Jews around the world, literally, uh, to write 100 words or less about their, their relationship of Judaism and money, whatever they wanted to write to us. And we organized them. I have a great picture of me, in fact, uh, with a pair of scissors and them all on my, my den floor, reorganizing them all into the order I wanted them to unfurl. Um, but I brought you a few samples, uh, two samples from Arizona. Does anyone know Rabbi Linder? Yeah. yeah. Okay, good, good. So that's I, I wanted you to see um, some local flavor here. Um, and he writes, of course, as a labor organizer in the 1980s, I worked with hospital workers who fought hard for a living wage, affordable, affordable quality health care, and safer working conditions. Yet at the core, from doctors to nurses to hospital aides and maintenance staff, what employees cared most deeply was about was to be treated with respect and dignity and to care for their patients and families. Years later, at Torah study on Shabbat mornings, I connect these issues of fairness, justice, and human dignity as cornerstones of Judaism. This is what inspired me to become a rabbi, bringing words of Torah into the real world. I love this piece because when people talk about religion, they tend to say, well, religion and spirituality are over here, and money and finance are over here and the two should never meet. That is the most un-Jewish point of view <laughs> you could possibly have. In Judaism, we, we deeply believe that anything having to do with Torah is about the real world. That what we do within the synagogue, whether it's prayer or study, that what the acid test is what we do when we walk out the front doors. This is the place where we get super enriched so that we can be filled with the Torah ourselves and go out and live that Torah, whether it's in our personal lives, our homes, or, or in the streets uh, you know, shaping our nation. Okay, so let's hear another one. This is a very different one. So here, Aliza Orant, um, I love the, the honesty that comes with this. This is not um, an easy, uh, thing to write publicly. As a Jewish professional, I raised my, Jewish, my, my children in a heavily Jewish environment. They attended JCC nursery school, day school, Jewish camp, BBYO trips, JCC Maccabi games, and more. Often these were out of our financial league. Throughout their growing up, they watched as I filled out scholar, scholarship applications so they could participate fully in Jewish life. It, it's not easy and also quite humbling to ask for financial aid, but the experience of receiving funds taught our family about the importance and value of tzedakah. I hope that my children, as they enter the workforce, will pay it forward and enable other children to have the experiences they were given. Wow. First of all, what bravery to write that publicly. And in this, I just see so many beautiful layers that are later addressed in some of the chapters in this book. Um, the choices we make when we choose to serve the Jewish community, um, what it means to have a living wage when you can still raise your children as Jewish, uh, and that 
that is an honest sacrifice, but the fact that a Jewish life has more and more financial barriers to it. And we as a greater community have to be aware of that for all people, for all people who want to enter our community and be part of the Jewish community to really understand what those financial barriers feel like. And I think that this line, it's not easy and also quite humbling to ask for financial aid. I hope that every single professional and committee that has to deal with giving out those scholarships reads that line because it's not easy and we forget. We, we forget how hard it is for people to come forward and ask for that. And it's really on us as a community to make it as accessible and, and, and really judgment free um, as humanly possible. That we make it accessible to people with a lot of rahmanas, a lot of compassion. So um, very important. And also that idea of paying it forward. And here we really hear the idea of tzedakah, tzedakah, that we hear that tzedek, we hear that this um, allowed her children and her to um, overcome and to have the equal Jewish experience that other children had. So that's also nice in that. Okay, let's, one more Arizona local coming up. Does no, anybody know Rabbi Shapiro? Yes. yes? Oh, good, good. So now you have to tell your rabbis that you, you saw their pieces. Um, Okay, so this got a little off the screen, so let's see. I was a salesman for 10 years, and in that time, I came to see that money is far more than currency. It's a symbol. It's a tool that allows us to do what we want. Some pursue money because it provides security. For others, money offers freedom. Others use money as tzedakah to bring justice to the world. Power, choice, motivation, love, success. Money represents all of these for different people at different times in our lives. When I think about money in a basic way, I think about what I can buy with it. When I consider it more deeply, however, I think about what it allows me to do and whom it allows me to be. It's a beautiful statement too. Um, Jean Shatsky, who um, you might know from TV, she, she has the Her Money podcast too, which I highly recommend. I think it's a very level-headed approach to personal finance. Um, that she talks about the question, what do you want from your money? You know, usually we, we, we think about how much money do we want? Um, you know, Wall, the Wall Street crowd talks about what's your number? You know, what's the number you think you're, you've, you've made it? Um, but I think it's a much more nuanced question when you think about what do you want out of your money? And that's what Rabbi Shapiro is really talking about here. All these different things that people want from their money. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Some of you may have a financial background. Some of you may have studied economics. And I apologize now. I am just messing together with the words money and wealth together and using them in very colloquial sense. Um, at, rather than that, that money is the vehicle by which we uh, account for, we store wealth. So I'm just, from the get-go, just uh, know that I know I'm doing it. Okay, so here, what's in the book? I, I want to give you a, a broad sense and then go into some fun texts. Um, so again, this is a very horizontal view of, um, of the topic. I wanted it to be that way. There are wonderful books that other people have written that are deep, deep dives into any one chapter or part of the book. Um, but I felt it was really important to start find, 
uh, foundationally with the question is, um, what do our texts have to say about wealth? Um, you know, in some ways I could have listed that question as, um, you know, is, is money good or evil? What is it? And especially these first four chapters are this beautiful unit by, by scholars, each bringing a different level to that question of what does Judaism, what do we have to say about money itself? And uh, spoiler alert, we don't think money is evil. It's really about what you do with the money and how you allow it to shape your experience of the world or you rather shape your experience of the world with it. Um, I love this uh, economic theology of the Ten Commandments just because, Rabbi Chaikin, just because it's such um, a surprise, one of those surprise chapters. This was his, uh, an outgrowth of his rabbinical thesis, which was an outgrowth of his undergraduate thesis, and um, is just um, a nice little, like, wow, you know, most people never think of the Ten Commandments as a complete economic statement. There you go, nice surprise. Um, the end of every part of the book, I have two special offerings. One is ethics and, fo and focus, which are um, 1,500 words just about on one particular ethical example. So here we have one that was written a long time ago, way before all the headlines, and it's become very timely when donors behave badly, guiding principles for Jewish institutions. Um, and Rabbi Stoller has a particular point of view, and I think it's very interesting. Uh, then we have a 500-word piece, which is talking about money, which is a little narrative piece here. Dr. Altzman talks so beautifully about her immigrant par parents uh, from Russia and the frugality that they um, taught her, she in turn has been instilling in her sons, and, um, and the pluses and minuses of that mindset. Okay, next part of the book. So we have this nice foundation of what our texts think, and then of course we're, the first place you go, of course, is the expected and very important place of tzedek and tzedakah, the power of money. Everything from economic justice to the practical, uh, Rabbi Adar's article, how we choose where, where we give, um, which is, um, uh, for instance, you might be uh, familiar with uh, Rabbi Jill Jacobs' work, which is phenomenal. Uh, Rabbi Adar has a slightly different point of view, and I think that they're both very valid and, and have great um, impact. Uh, socially responsible investing, which was popular many years ago, is on the rise. The Reform Pension Board now has a fund that's socially responsible investing, and the head of the pen, uh, pension fund and um, one of the rabbis who's on the board co-wrote this article, and it's just a really fascinating um, point of view. Um, how uh, Rabbi Mosbacher and his uh, colleagues are fighting uh, gun violence by leveraging the power of money. Again, really interesting and un unexpected. Um, tools, the exact, all the different interesting tools of tzedakah that our tradition gives us. And then a nice dialogue between two different leaders in philanthropy, um, Andres Spaconi and of Ben Shimon, uh, in terms of our legacy organizations and how they collect and give money. Um, and I feel like this giving money to panhandlers should be studied by every one of us, taught in all of our confirmation classes, family education, uh, because this is probably um, something we're all going to experience, and we should be, have some Jewish ethics to guide us at that moment when someone asks for money. Yeah. What about giving anonymously? I mean, Jews, there's been, I mean, Larry David even did a whole episode on giving anonymously and how, you know, 
That's the old joke. That's the old joke. You know, I hope you saw my donation. Oh, no, I didn't see you on the list. Oh, I'm anonymous. Right. right? Well, our tradition thinks very highly of giving anonymously. The question is, uh, can you make an argument, an ethical argument, for not giving anonymously? And then you would talk about being a dogma, a role model. Um, but, but ultimately, uh, anonymous giving, in terms of our tradition, is held up very high. So um, I just, uh, just to finish off this part, and then we're going to just move on, because we've got some other things to look at. Talking about money. And I asked Zoe Klein-Mills, Rabbi Mills, um, to, um, to uh, write about her. Her father is a famous art artist in LA. And I asked her to write about tzedakah boxes, thinking she would write about supporting Jewish artists. And she knocked my socks off with a totally different point of view. She does mention it in like half a phrase, supporting Jewish artists. Um, but what tzedakah boxes do for us today in a world of basically internet finance, um, when what we put in a tzedakah box rarely measures up to what the worth of the box is itself, right? If we mostly put coins in it, um, what they do for us. So that's, I'm not going to spoil that for you. That is a beautiful piece. Okay. Part three, I couldn't write a book without centering something squarely on Israel. And our relationship here in North America and in the diaspora community with Israel and what it means to give money, I think we, ha we, we had to explore both the historical and present. And, um, and I threw in there, I was really torn about this, but I, in the end I felt this was the home for it. Um, the evolution of debt and bankruptcy in Jewish law from biblical times in the land of Israel to what it is today. And the way that lending money started as an act of tzedakah and became a uh, tool of the economy and of the business place and what that difference is. And it's good for us, yeah. So um, I, I, economic justice. But everything from the point of view of wealth, legacy, mm -hmm. nation, yeah, so, power, you know, what about the other half? Sure. We, we, will, we will see. We, okay. We'll, we'll see, and we'll see some of the nice texts that we, we have to see on, on that very topic. Um, uh, and when you hire an, a rabbi in Israel and how um, under, underfunded and undersupported, especially women rabbis are in the liberal world. So, um, and continuing on. Sorry, Isabel, we're gonna, yeah. Okay, um, we all are employers. So this is especially about economic difference. So this might answer your question, sir, a little bit. Of, um, of Jill Jacobs, uh, Rabbi Jacobs writing um, about um, employment and the partnership and mutual inspect, respect that goes into employment and the uh, delicacy with which that disparity of economics really has to be understood and that the employer has to understand the impact of being an employer on the employee. I wrote a complimentary chapter, uh, the family as employer, because uh, so many people hire domestic workers in some way, shape, or form across all stratas of, of uh, economics to really understand that you are an employer. People often like to talk about the people that they employ in their household as being like family. 
the person who came to my home and cared for my children or cared for my elderly parent or walked my dog or, or whatever so that I could go to work and support my family, oh, they're like family. That's a very disempowering thing to say to an employee. That takes away all their rights and the fact that you have to pay them fairly. And Jewish tradition has a lot to say about that. Um, striving for pay equity. And uh, here are two leaders in the reform movement writing about that. But that is true across all of Judaism. Um, the history of uh, Jews in the American labor movement, and especially those who were factory workers and at the bottom of our urban society, um, and the great price they paid and the ways they stood up at great cost to themselves to change what was going on and how they were being treated. And of course, that becomes a model for us for today. Rabbi Arthur Gross Schaefer, uh, writing about Jewish values in the marketplace. He takes beautiful um, um, Mishnaic material uh, from the Mishnah and applies it each, uh, what he thinks is are gems that we should all keep in mind and how they apply to modern scenarios today. And uh, Rabbi Andy Kahn, from coming from a very particular perspective of um, of dreaming in a new American economy. A lot of the political messages coming out of the Democratic uh, Party, he has reframed into uh, Jewish text the way he sees it. I love the way this, this article with its very particular, very left point of view, for instance, stands in contrast to an article that comes later that is uh, suggesting that we should all be having um, evangelical Christian Dave Ramsey um, which comes from a very different political, the exact opposite point of view, that we should be teaching that in our synagogues. So nice little, little uh, balance there, but awesome discussion among these chapters. We're going to get to that in a second. Some of you are going like, what? What? Teaching what in our synagogues? Um, and a response on equal pay and, um, and a, a, a narrative about domestic workers. Okay, let's next one. We're up to, we're, there are six parts of the book, so. I want to just get through all of this. I hope you're finding it interesting. I'm keeping an eye on the time. Uh, religious life and money. Of course, I said before that we tend to put those in two different buckets and think that they shouldn't meet. And here, all of these articles teach the myriad ways that Judaism has always struggled to bring them together. So uh, Rabbi Leo Lewis at the top there is talking about the value and the price of affiliation. That should be read by every leader in every one of our sub-communities um, in the Jewish community. Um, the cost of dying Jewishly. Um, this is uh, the basis of this is one of my favorite texts. Rabbi Shmuley and I talked about this earlier. Um, the Moed Katan material with Ramban Gamliel uh, saying that Jewish funerals were too expensive. Guess when he said that? During Roman times. <laughs> like you could have written that today. Amazing. Um, but the brave way that he stood up and said things have got to change. And I think we're at a point for our Jewish community, not just about funerals, but many things, the cost of Jewish living, where we all need to stand up and say, this has got to change. So you, of course, beautifully spoke about that before as well. Um, Rabbi Sagel, um, these are one of the, this is one of those surprise chapters where you would think, like, you tell any rabbi to write a chapter about light Jewish life cycle events, especially uh, like bar mitzvah and weddings. What do you think anybody he's going to say is going to go? Over the 
over the top, stop that, you Jews. No, he didn't. He, he, he wrote something that was uh, completely the opposite, is Jews today are not embracing their Judaism enough, they're not affiliating enough, and we should not be, be harshing out on the Jews who decide to celebrate their, their simcha uh, with uh, their, the full expanse of their financial means. So, interesting chapter, I know. You would not expect that. That's what he wrote. It, and it, it interesting contrast with some of the other chapters. Um, but beautifully written, beautifully argued. Um, Rabbi Scheinberg um, wrote, uh, goes through all of, not all of, but he brings his favorite highlights from Jewish liturgy and rituals to show how money has permeated all of those throughout our history and that they've never been separate. Rabbi Gubitz, um, Jewish rituals. She, she comes up with modern rituals, both collecting uh, existing examples from our own modern age, and then offers like suggestions for things. So maybe how would it would look like to have a Jewish um, ritual for when you retire, for when you pay off your student loans, for when you pay your last Jewish day school tuition. Yay, I've done that recently. Um, all those things, what would it look like besides perhaps a Shekhianu, like what else could we bring to that moment? Um, and then uh, this, the, the play of Gelt, and I'm not talking just about the chocolate Gelt. She makes reference to the chocolate Gelt, but she talks about it broader. And copyright infringement, and um, the price of um, infertility, and going into debt for infertility. Okay, last chapter. <sighs> Uncomfortable conversations. Money lending and Jews, we talked about that. Monetizing teshuva, reparations and returning valuables. Uh, Patty Gersten Blythe is a international, you know, top expert lawyer in um, the topic of reparations and returning stolen property. She's done a lot of work with um, with uh, stuff stolen by the Nazis, but other archeological digs. Her husband and she uh, frame it in a Jewish light and tell the story of, of some famous cases and why it matters. Embracing Dave Ramsey. How many of you know who Dave Ramsey is? Raise your hand if you know. I did not know who Dave Ramsey is. I was going to a rabbi conference and I met uh, a bunch of rabbis in the airport. We decided to share a car to the uh, hotel together. And one of my younger colleagues turned to me and said, oh, what are you working on these days? And I said, a book about Jews and money. And she said, oh, do you know about Dave Ramsey? And I said, well, who? <laughs> I'm from New York, I have no idea. She's from Texas, she knew. Um, the number one radio personality podcast in America is Dave Ramsey. He's evangelical Christian. Um, and in fact, that young colleague, Rabbi Cohen, and her senior rabbi, Rabbi Friedman, had a congregant who came to them and said, we need to be teaching this here because our Jewish members are going to churches to learn this stuff. We need to be doing it here because we need to be teaching Jewish literacy. How amazing would that be, Jewish people, if we, in every one of our synagogues, JCCs, our camps, federation, everywhere, were teaching, not just our young people, because it's always easy for us to say, let's teach the young people. Every generation needs this to learn financial literacy. 
and to be bringing, what they did is they took this model that has all these heavy, heavy uh, Christian teachings and lots of Jesus talk, and they do that, and then they step back, and the rabbi stands there and says, and by the way, this is what Judaism has to teach about this. And in fact, they have now showed their curriculum to Ramsey Solutions, and I think it may be moving forward to be making a Jewish version, but I'm not sure. I don't know where it's landed lately. But it's really an interesting idea of, and, and then you could talk about tzedek, you could talk about tzedakah, you could talk about the value, both the cost and the value, the real value of a Jewish life. And um, you know, the whole idea between the evangelical Christian idea is that when people are financially free of debt, then they have more money to give, and therefore they are free to, to, to give. Well, that's the true and for Jews too. If you're not burdened with debt, then you would have more money to give to tzedakah. And by the way, do we ever talk about tithing in our communities? No, we don't, but it's actually part of our tradition and we should be talking about it. Orthodox Jews and evangelical Christians are the groups that talk about tithing. And I would say we all can talk about tithing. As a reform rabbi, this is maybe a different way than Rabbi Shmuley would t teach it. You'll have to let us know. Um, I would say this is what, our, our, what Judaism teaches, 10% tithing. However, if you're not ready for that, then maybe what you want to do is sit down and look at your finances and figure out a percentage that feels comfortable. But our tradition is teaching us not to give just because we feel like it, to actually set an amount and live up to a standard and keep stretching ourselves. Our tradition also teaches us that we shouldn't give so much that it damages ourselves. Our tradition is very clear about that. We're not meant to put ourselves into debt giving, even if we have the will to do that, but we should be giving. We don't give because it feels good. The feels good part is the bonus. We give because we have to. And in fact, that's why we, we say, and our tradition teaches, that even the one who receives tzedakah should give tzedakah. Okay. Um, and of course, Jewish uh, values and, and what it means to do premarital counseling with uh, the Musar and talk about finances. Um, and the uh, very sad idea of closing a synagogue and what happens to the assets. Um, ethical estate planning and this beautiful final chapter in the book, which I have to say is, a, is to me so beautiful. Marcy Zelikow, big time philanthropist with her husband, um, was able to give a great deal of money, especially to the Jewish community, and then had a reversal of their finances and it's the letter that she wrote to all of her grantees saying we won't be continuing at this rate for a while until we recover. And it just shows the heart of a philanthropist and the relationship and care with which we have to treat those we give money and the respect when we give money. It's a beautiful example. Okay, let's look at some text. How y'all doing, good? Good. Okay. So um, I told Rabbi Shmuley this earlier, I am so obsessed with coveting right now. I know that's kind of ironic. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little stuck on it. So um, this is what I call the forgotten commandment. Uh, we have it, of course, twice in the Torah because it repeats. 
What's nice about the repetition is that you have the language of lo tachmod, which you have in the first version, the you shall not covet. Um, but then in the second retelling of that, you have the lo titaveh, which is you will not crave. And maybe it's just my coming from the food background first in my life, but the, I find there's actually a lot of food type imagery um, around the idea of coveting and desire for things, wealth, um, objects. And of course, all of the things that are listed here, even the wife, are um, in some ways monetary. They're not just uh, the licentious of the lust one might have for another, uh, another uh, person, but it, it, these all have a certain financial uh, dimension, but of course, I, I would argue that coveting can go beyond uh, things. Sometimes it, it's um, more than that. What's interesting about our tradition and the challenge of this kind of prohibition on thought, the Ten Commandments, of course, starts with uh, you know um, a positive that we should we should worship and and believe only in God, uh, which is also thought driven. So it's funny that it, you know you start and end on this. But we generally don't think of Judaism as a thought religion. We generally think of Judaism as an action religion, and you could argue that either way. But here is the, what exactly is the misdeed? Is it the thought, or is it the things that you would do to fulfill the thought? And the rabbis argue about that. They struggle with that. And, um, and if it's just the thought, the desire itself is not the bad thing in Judaism. And we know that in life and the Jewish view of life, that desire is a good thing, that, uh, that it gets us out of bed, it makes us uh, strive to be more than what we are at this moment, to learn more, to do more. You know, if uh, this goes back to the question about anonymous giving. Um, you know, if we, if we announce that, uh, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Goldberg just gave uh, $10 million to whatever effort, you know, maybe when I'm doing my tzedakah, I'll remember the Goldbergs. I know the Goldbergs. They're good people. And I will say, you know what? I don't have that kind of money, but I'm going to double down on my tzedakah giving. Well, that's not a bad motivation. That's a great motivation. But when do, when do you hit the coveting zone is the question. And in many ways, it's an unanswered question. But let's look at some other texts to, to think about it. So here, uh, Kohelet Ecclesiastes. Um, this is an interesting text. There is nothing worthwhile for a man but to eat and drink and afford himself enjoyment with his means, meaning from what I have. Um, and, and even as I've noted before, this comes from, from God. And here, okay, let, let's say you're not coveting. You're, you're just you know, enjoying what you have. There's a danger that our texts point out with the enjoyment of what you have. The text is saying that you're allowed to enjoy. Yes, you can eat and drink, but it's also warning us that this is temporary. This is futile. It's going to go away. We all know that. We all know that in our hearts, not only through the ultimate going away, which is when we die, it goes away. We're no longer connected to that. We're going to see another Kohelet text that's as brutally honest. But you might fall into the trap of, of that contentment going to a bad place and thinking, aha, this is everything I did. 
This is all on me. So you, you tell me, what, what, what's bad about having pride in what I've accomplished? You know, that I've, I've built this nice life, I have all this money or whatever around me. Um, speaking personally, it builds resentment because that means that nobody helped me. So I bought this all by myself. Mm -hmm. And so there's a deep negativity to, I mean, it's double-sided, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're proud, but you're also angry. Well, yeah, it, it definitely does not draw you closer to other people it because you, it's a huge separation, exactly. What else is, is dangerous about this? Well, it, there's that old line, uh, beware of the self-made man who worships his maker. And uh, the challenge is, is that you become blind to the contributions along the way, whether or not you were aware of it, but someone gave you the opportunity, someone mm -hmm. made a suggestion. Nobody succeeds purely on their own. Ex Everybody's success is a, that, that, that old line, it takes a village. Mm -hmm. Well, it may not be an obvious village, but everybody has drawn on somebody or a group of people in order to move forward. And once you forget that, Two things happen. One is anybody who doesn't move forward, you think less of, mm. which is a really big problem. Yes. But more importantly, you then can justify doing anything to move forward because you have no constraints. Right, you, you, have no, you have no gratitude for those who can, the rest of the village. And, and I want to especially pick out that part of the judgment you pass on other people. If you don't recognize the way that every, everyone around you and who, those who came before you contributed to whatever you have at this moment, there is an innate critique of those who have not gotten to a place of financial stability because it is saying, well, I was able to self-make myself. Why aren't you able to self-make yourself? And, and neither, of course, are true. Neither are true, that, that nobody fully makes themselves. Again, we, in America, we love the story of the self-made person. Um, but it doesn't recognize the role of history, chance, and, um, and the village, as you said, right? Um, and, it, it, and, and certainly when we look at those who are still in the struggle, we have to understand the role of chance and the lack of village. Right? Yeah. Well, I run a company, and we had many different ethnic people. Mm -hmm. And in some of their tradition, it was not to disagree <clears throat> with someone in charge. And so I got a t-shirt that said, The Village Idiot, and I got a hat that was a fool's cap. Mm -hmm. And when we had meetings to discuss things, I would say, I don't know how anything works. And I would, people would start, and then they'd stop, and I'd say, you have to tell me more. I don't understand. You have to make it simpler. And through that, I got so many contributions from people, particularly people from Southeast Asia, 
where nobody, you know, there's a hierarchy of power, and nobody says anything bad about whoever's in charge, even if what they're doing is terrible. Mm -hmm. But it opened up the opportunity for people to make contributions, <coughs> because I play the role of the stupidest person in the room. Interesting. Thank you. That's a great narrative. Thanks. Thank you. Um, and here, um, I just want to point out, uh, so there, this is not saying that enjoyment is bad. It's saying it's futile, and meaning that it, it is short-lived, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. But the one who thinks that they, it's all just from them, what are they cursed with here? doesn't say curse, but this is what they, they who, those who displease God, God gives them the urge to gather and amass. They are restless. They never have that moment of, of having pleasure with what they have. They have to continually gather and amass. And to me, I read that as that coveting. That's what coveting is. It's just wanting, wanting, wanting. It is unbridled desire and want. Yeah. That's what Joseph did. Speak more about that. No, and it was, it was a, a good thing that he did. Ah. He gathered in a mass and saved the Jewish people. He saved the Egyptians. Yes, but that's planning. That's a, that, that is not the kind of gathering and amassing referred to here. You're right, it's the, the same, same words, but it is um, both in, in Hebrew and, and in English. But it is, um, that, that is good stewardship is what we would call that today. I want to point to a different part, part of the Joseph narrative. You know where I'm going with this, uh, of true coveting, which is, of course, the, the jacket, the, the garment that, um, that his father gave him. And the schism, it, it exasperates between him and his brothers. Um, on Saturday, I'm using that text in a great text study in Tucson, if you feel like taking a road trip. We're going to be looking at that in depth. Um, so, but thank you. Thank you for pointing out and asking that question. Uh, any, yeah, please. Um, I was reading an article about dissatisfaction and how so many people are dissatisfied and, and how the social media has played it up. And it started going back to when advertising first came into mm -hmm. being. And uh, one of the originators of of advertising as we know it that made you desire stuff mm -hmm. said that um, and he defined it as happiness was what you feel the minute before you need something else to make you happy mm. satisfaction is, is that that brief moment but we can feed that desire to make you hungry for mm -hmm. and ask, yeah please um, from my generation to yours let me play ambassador a little bit. Um, do you think that my generation covets more than yours does? Covets more? No. No, I think. Well, do you think it manifests? I mean, this is an open question. Like, do you think it manifests differently, or do you think that it does it look different? Does it come from a different place? Does it, you know, has it mutated into something a little uglier? Like, what do you think? I, don't, I have a daughter your age. Okay. You can weigh in too. To have the same fears that I had growing up, you know. I, I mean, I had just other parents, and they'd say, "I've given my child everything that I didn't have. What's the problem here?" 
I said, they have different needs. You know, what fulfilled me did not necessarily fulfill the next generation. And so, no, I don't think they're more covetous, but I do think that things like Instagram and Facebook, that everybody always posts their best stuff up there, like, it's hey, hey, look at me. And they never, you know, they never show you their pile of dirty laundry, you know, or the the dust bunnies behind their fridge or, or the moldy spaghetti. I mean, you know, people always just put their good stuff up there. Yeah. And I want to just change the perspective a little. So we also have children who are in their late 40s and early 50s. And the biggest argument my sons have with me is I don't know how to spend money. And the reason I don't know how to spend money is my parents scraped by. So I watched them and was never comfortable in spending money. When my son grew up in a totally different environment where nobody scraped by, there was, I wouldn't say great stuff around, but all of a sudden the idea of spending money as opposed to saving money had a totally different perspective. From their perspective, there's always going to be money. Whereas from my perspective, watching my parents who went through first the Depression and then losing everything again during World War II because they were uh, Holocaust survivors, when they got to America, and even though they were safe and comfortable, my, my parents used to save money in socks stuck behind dresses. I used to say, why are we doing it? You never know when we're going to have to run away again. Wow. So it's a very different perspective. I think I, I see my daughter, maybe they don't get everything they want, but they've never faced the, the potential of having nothing. Yeah. And if you have ever had the potential of having nothing, but I think the latest generation has, as they've witnessed the Great Recession, as they struggle with their own debt. I, I, but you are, you are um, absolutely right. And I think one of the things we all need to do is just take a, both a moment to, not right now, but in life, to reflect on why we feel about money the way we did. You just expressed it so beautifully about your family journey with money and how the, how that has life has affected that view and you you and from a different generational view did the same but what i love about our text is that our ancient our ancients are expressing the same struggles that we have today um, that this is universal. Yeah, social media may, may affect it in a different way, or the price of a college education may affect it in a different way, but that the same struggles that, that we have today to figure out our place in the world, ultimately these are all questions about what's the meaning of life and how do we, we go through life. Um, let's, see, let's see the next text. Um, as if I may be asking you to take a jump. Um, yeah, let's take a jump on this one. This is a beautiful text, but we, we kind of covered that. Um, I, I just want to, um, yeah, we're going to skip this one too. We're going to, the lover of money never has their fill. Okay, this is the one I really want to get to. So I made reference to this before, I think. Um, I've talked about this a couple times today, so I forget which, which conversation. So I think this is a fantastic text for 
every generation. So when you look at this, this is an extended multi-page conversation in the Talmud, and it's talking about the huge cost of um, Jewish funerals. It's going through all the different objects of uh, that part of the mourning practices, um, everything from the way the food is served to the mourners to um, the um, uh, funeral buyer, the, these ex elaborate kind of platform things that were carried um, to the, the shroud that they are dressed in. And this is Ramban Gamliel who has um, this, you know, bravery. Um, they, they say here in the English, uh, acted with frivolity, and, and it's the same, same in the text that uh, the Kalot Rosh, that uh, he, um, it's not that he's being frivolous in his actions. Here with the Steinsaltz uh, translation, he, he brings in the, uh, unpacks the, the very compact language of the Talmud. He's waving his dignity. He is saying, even though I'm this world famous rabbi, literally, and, and you all want to give me the biggest, best funeral ever, I don't want you to because I'm about to start a new trend and help everyone. But uh, so on one hand, you, this text is used, um, yes, in the chapter about the cost of Jewish funerals, but several other of the authors make reference to this text because it's really about creating expectations of, of, of what people spend money on that are beyond people's means and what the ultimate effect is. So here in this text, um, people in the Jewish community are literally leaving their dead relatives and abandoning the corpse in the street. Now, whether or not that's hyperbole or the truth, it still speaks to the pain between what the societal expectation is and what it, um, it and what they're able financially to do and how awful that feels. Whether it's recently or years ago, we've all been like at that let's go out with friends moment when you can only afford this much and suddenly you're sitting at some restaurant you can't afford and everyone's ordering with that abandon and you don't know how they're going to divide the check. It's the same issue. I can't afford what everybody else is doing and I feel stuck. It's the same question that families uh, struggle with today uh, when everybody in their synagogue sends their kid to a particular Jewish day school and they feel stuck even after being offered a, a generous scholarship. It's the same issue of what people feel like when they're sitting up at nights thinking, how are we going to pay for college? And how much debt are we and are my child going to have to take and everybody else's kids are going to this type of college or college itself? These are all the same questions. They're the same drivers. And, and ultimately, it's about standing back and saying, well, what's the real need and what's the real want? And what are the expectations being created by society? And what part do we all have in that? And here, this rabbi has the bravery of standing up and saying, I'm going to stop this. But he has the power to stop it, you know? I don't know, like if I stood up and said I'm doing something different, maybe it affects some people, but not to that extent. Not the extent that for the next, you know, thousand years, everybody's going to be doing the same funeral. Yeah, 2,000. I think it's geographic. Okay. In a different sense. So my oldest son lives in a very wealthy city. And his peers have a lot of money. And 
my grandson was of bar mitzvah age, they got an invitation, all right? It was inscribed in acrylic. Okay. The invitation said, we're looking forward to having you join us for the simcha, blah, bar mitzvah, blah, 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 blah. And then was the punchline. After the service, we will all go down to Westchester County Airport where we will board two jets to fly to Turks and Caicos for the weekend. So, I looked at this and I, yeah, what's the problem? I looked at this and I turned to my son and said, what do you think about this? His comment was, if you think I'm letting my 13-year-old be unchaperoned on an island somewhere a thousand miles away, you're out of your mind. And the, the parents who got the thing called the parent back and said, you're over the top. Wow. We're not going to go. And they backed off. <clears throat> not that they didn't do something above and beyond. Yeah. But was, this was, rec was this recently? It was two years ago. So I want to tell you that, that when I was a congregational rabbi, um, this was probably 15 to 20 years ago, someone in my community did this exact exact bat mitzvah. That case was a bat mitzvah. And everybody went to some Caribbean island, not America. And just the kids, just the kids with a few chaperones. We were all aghast. Um, I mean, I was the rabbi in the community, one of the rabbis in the community. I wasn't like a peer where I could say you can't do this or shouldn't do this. And what's even worse is that all those girls came into school on Monday morning, sunburnt, hair, you know, braided in island fashion. And so, right, now we also call that cultural appropriation. But on top of that, what, what was that statement to, the, to everybody else? Now, that was the over the top. I think this trend has died, so here younger people check me on this. But for a very long time, everyone would come in with the bar mitzvah t-shirt or sweatshirt, right? Oh, okay. But in some, some communities, that they've asked the kids not to come to school with that, not because it isn't a beautiful piece of, of memorabilia, but what's the message to the kid who wasn't invited? Right? That's, and, and some schools have, let me just bring it out of the Jewish community, they've asked the kids not to come in with the college t-shirts because of the same reasons, because of the kids who don't get into college on December 14th and are struggling and have their whole life derailed, in, you know, their teenage view of what their life was going to be and how painful it is, you know, whether it's for one day or two months or whatever until they catch, or for the kid who can't afford college or, or isn't going to college because that's not their life path. So part of that is, is how, how, what do these moments mean? And my bet is that, that the real clinker for, for those parents was the safety issue. I hope it was the economic dis disparity too, you know, but I bet a lot. Some of it was. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about one-tenth of one percenters. Yeah. <clears throat> this was... This is not people you just named. No, I understand. That's I, a little bit of money. I, I can imagine. <clears throat> I can imagine. So, um, you know, I, I don't want to just put it on the one-tenth of the one percenters because in a way it's on all of us. It's on all of us. Um, all what 
maximize what we can do in such a situation. I know I would. I mean, I would try to give my son whatever I could, yeah. you know, to celebrate that big moment in his life. And I think once you hit a certain economic stratum, you kind of lose perspective. Yeah, you, you, lose, so, the, you lose the perspective where the goalposts are. So it's you do. Not, it's not necessarily that they have so much money. I mean, like, everyone, everyone would want to give their child... Mm-hmm. you know, the best. So, like, yeah. you can't say, like, oh, that's so junky of them. I mean, I can understand where that comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say, like, when, when, we, when my husband and I were young parents, we struggled with the cost of birthday parties because we were in a well-heeled community. And you can't do a birthday party in cheap anymore. I, well, you can. I mean, you, you no, can. When it's, when it's hot in the summer here, if you have a summer birthday, you have yeah. to be inside somewhere. Go to the bounce house. That's still expensive. That's like $400. It is. Yeah. If you can't fit anyone in your house and you can't be outside, you have to be inside somewhere, it's like hundreds of dollars. Well, I mean, again, again, I I think, you know, you and I can be Ramban Gamliel, and sometimes I have to at least pretend to be or channel him. Um, but it was it was it was hard. My husband and I were young parents. We had a mortgage for the first time. Um, you, you know, uh, in the New York area, there were there was um, my son was born in 2000, so we had the burst bubble of 2000 and 2001, and like he had a job, but we always like thought it was about to go away any second. And I was taking a little bit step back to work more limited hours, so I could be home more with my child rather than out 90 hours a week. And and it and the, and these parties were like over the top, and the pressure, the, it was it, you could feel it. So like I I have like I was there. I was I wasn't you know I wasn't leaving my kid in the street, but it was tempting. It was you know it was tempting to. <laughs> and by the way, I skip I skipped the first birthday completely. I was like, you'll never remember this. <laughs> like we, we don't need to do this one. Some years ago, at least twenty to stop your wedding. Put a limit on how much people should spend on weddings. Yeah. The chatter, yeah, we, yep, yeah, yeah. We, we we had this conversation earlier, but yes, absolutely. And we, and, and I think we were we're half lamenting, half uh, you know, in awe of like, wow, to be a rabbi in a community where you can just say that and they actually they listen. They don't obey. Okay, I feel better about them. Like they hold by their rabbis on everything until it like gets close to the case. Like Moshe Feinstein was like, it's now forbidden by Jewish law to smoke. Yeah. Just couldn't, couldn't change it. Yeah. Or same on this, they're not obeying the. Mm-hmm. Okay, I feel better. <laughs> not just my people. Okay. So, yeah. So these are difficult issues, and you can see how real they are. Like, how, how, like I could see how emotional you got about it, right? This is, this is, and you, you know, and that juxtaposed against your family history of, of, of you know, what it meant to hide the socks of money. Like, wow, right? That's, that's, that's in the Kishka's stuff. It really is. Okay, so let, let's, uh, you have uh, patience for a few more? Yeah? Okay, that's it. Okay. Uh, I think you jumped one. So here, um, this is so well known, is who uh, Ashir, Hasameach Bihalko, the one who, who's rich, the one who's happy with his lot. Um, and then what we always, we always leave off, by the way, the proof text on this, the Psalms. Uh, when you eat of the work of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Of course, not Rabbi Shmuley, who had a book on Pirkei Avot, has a wonderful, beautiful book, which I've enjoyed immensely. Um, but I want to juxtapose this to the next one. So now we're going to jump to the next one. Because the Talmud asks the same question, but answers in a different way. 
there's a nice giggle in here, but I think it's actually quite a serious topic. Uh, here, again, asking who is wealthy, but then goes to the one who has pleasure from his wealth. And then this is the statement of Rabbi Meir. And then has this nice mnemonic. So now we have four rabbis representing what it means to have pleasure from your wealth. You have Rabbi Tarfon, a wealthy person, is one who has 100 vineyards, 100 fields, and 100 slaves working in them. You could say servant slaves. We're not going to have that conversation right now. Uh, a big workforce. OK. Rabbi Tarfon, guess what? Rich rabbi. Okay. By the way, this is a good example. Our Jewish tradition does not put on the pedestal the one who's rich. Our, rich our, our, our tradition does not put on the pedestal the one who is poor. So we have the whole panoply here. So now we have uh, Rabbi Akiva, uh, one who has a wife whose actions are pleasant. Of course, you, I hope you know the beautiful love story of Rabbi Akiva and his wife. His wife, of course, is disowned by her very rich um, father because she, she marries Akiva when he is an illiterate, poor shepherd. And he, uh, this beautiful material drawn from two places of the Talmud, if you want to see the whole text, come to Tucson on Shabbos. Um, but, uh, you know, beautiful imagery. He's saying to her, in, while picking straw out of her hair in their poverty, saying, I wish I could give you the, the crown of gold, Jerusalem shall have this beautiful imagery. And, and she says, no, that's not what I want. Talk about conversations we need to have with our beloveds. What do we actually want out of life? We think we want the, the wife or the husband wants the expensive gift. Maybe not. She wants him to learn and to become learned, and he does. Yes, sir. Also, interestingly, that is written from the male perspective. Well, that is true, but th that is. Uh, Yes, that is true, but you know, we, 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 uh, we're, we, we get used to that with our, our, our text. So uh, Rabbi Yosef says, here's our giggle, the one who has a bathroom close to his table, he had intestinal distress. Uh, so maybe, but, but um, you know, but from a modern point of view, you could write this from a modern point of view, he who has appropriate medical care, right? That blessing of so many people in our country that don't have that. But a little bit, this is about contentment. This is the, the, um, the foil to the coveting material. This is, again, a conversation about, of gratitude, of having what you actually need. Yes, sir? But there was another piece of that same Pirkei uh, Avot text. Mm -hmm. About the work of your hands. About the work of your hands, but also who is a wealthy person. And the last line of that, Yes, that's what we, we, we looked at. And, and this is actually why I juxtapose it, because this is showing different examples who have different <coughs> things and yet find pleasure in them. This is the contentment of actually fully, and they're totally different things. You know, maybe having a bathroom close to your table, that doesn't cost a lot to accomplish. But for some people, they'll never see that. For Next to Rabbi Tarfon, who ha obviously has so much. He's the one percenter in this case. Um, and Rabbi Akiva, who, who's judging this not. We have other texts, for instance, who say uh, in, the, in the negative, what, it, what is uh, poverty, not being learned. Of course, so you expect rabbis to talk about wealth and poverty in terms of being learned or not learned. But being learned, even in this time period, costs money. 
We have the texts about that too, about rabbis who are struggling to be able to learn, including Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Hillel. Uh, let, let's see uh, one more text because I just feel like this is, I can't leave on a happy note. <laughs> you know, usually you say you have to leave on a, I want you to go, not go out here walking out thinking just, okay, I need to just be, have content with what I have and gratitude for our, what I have. Our texts also tell us to really look at the other. And this text is startling. You know, here we are in uh, the beautiful, you think it's cold, I know you think it's cold. In fact, you're shivering and I appreciate that. It is a little cold in here. Um, but, um, you know, I, I live near New York City. We see this daily in New York City, literally. Look at this. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi went to Rome. He saw marvel pillars covered with sheets so they wouldn't crack from the heat nor freeze from the cold. He also saw a poor man with only a reed mat beneath him and another one upon his back to protect him from the elements. And our texts also ask us to be disturbed. They also ask us to be disturbed. And, and for me, uh, when we are not in a state of coveting, not in that sense of I have to gather and collect all the time and have an eye on what my neighbor has, and when we can have gratitude for what we have, we enter the giving mindset. We're able to look around and say, well, this is what I have, but what is my neighbor lacking? What are the people around me lacking? And that, that's what I want to end with that sometimes we get so consumed with worrying about the marble pillars, whether they're the communal ones or our personal ones, that we forget about the people who really need. Yeah? I just have one question. I know it was in your material early, but you didn't really talk about it, and that is, what, what do charitable organizations do about receiving Gil Gadgetans, Jeffrey Epstein money? Mm-hmm. Although his money may not be. Sure. He might be. So standing on one foot, uh, Rabbi Stoller writes beautifully about this. Um, he, he certainly, you, you don't need the name on the building. Um, you shouldn't be misused as a, as a excuse or um, you know reason for the person to have status in the community. Um, but for instance, Maimonides says that giving tzedakah is, uh, is a mitzvah, it's a commandment. We talked about that. So you can't prevent people from giving tzedakah, but it's the recognition, and really if they've done true teshuva, then the answer should be that they should be giving it in the most anonymous of ways, and that they should be coming to you and saying, I'm so embarrassed by what I did that the name should not be on the building anymore. It doesn't mean that the, the uh, institution, but I think for every institution, whether it's Sackler money or Epstein money or whatever, that they need to think through what the model is for the community and what way that is going to be communicated to the, because the worst thing that you could do is seem complicit in, the, in their actions and covering up. So, yeah. It made me think of the first time I visited Ethiopia when we got off the bus, and Ethiopian Jews started singing, how good is our lot? And they were living in houses that had dirt floors and thatched rooms. Mm. Beautiful memory. Thank you. Thank you. I think we need to end there, huh? Thank you very much, Professor Zaymore. <laughs> Rabbi. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. 
At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.